You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The year is 1797. The president of the United States is John Adams, and he goes to Congress Hall in Philadelphia to say a few words to Congress. It's no usurpation. He's allowed to by the Constitution, and indeed, the members of Congress must listen. He talks about the need to arm the country, to form a national army to protect it. Also, as allowed by the Constitution, he asks for taxes to fund the new measures. Immediately following Adams' speech, the leader of the opposition, who happens to be the vice president, Thomas Jefferson, gets up and responds reminding the Congress of the alliance with France that helped America through its revolution. He also argues against those taxes that Adams proposed. That part, of course, is fiction. In 1797, there was only an opportunity for Adams to speak, no opportunity for the opposition. This was the president's time alone to deliver the State of the Union. But that's okay, because outside of the representatives in Congress Hall in Philadelphia, there really wasn't much of an audience for the State of the Union back then. Indeed, when Jefferson became president on his own and had his turn to speak to Congress, as Washington's Adams had done, he decided not to. It appeared too much like the actions of a monarch to be lecturing to the people's representatives. And until 1913, when Woodrow Wilson asked to speak to Congress, every president follows Jefferson's precedent and ignored Adams and Washington's conventions as an anachronism. But that was okay. Even when Woodrow Wilson spoke, still not that many people were listening. It was a speech intended for Congress. Wilson wanted to get involved in the legislative business. And he knew that Article 2 clearly reads that he shall from time to time give Congress information of the State of the Union and and recommend such measures as he shall deem necessary. And Wilson brought a precedent back. Now we would think it old-fashioned to go back to Jefferson's way and deliver a piece of writing to Congress each, each year as uh, Abraham Lincoln and so many other presidents during the 19th century did. We are used to seeing the president at the beginning of the year. So it was normal, of course, when, in 1985, Ronald Reagan spoke to the nation. He was an excellent orator, and he used his charisma to convince millions of Democratic and independent voters to vote for him the prior year. When he was finished, the Democratic Party held a unique town hall event with Democratic voters in an attempt to find out what was wrong, and to try to win some of those Democrats back. They featured several rising stars of their party. They turned to a young governor of Arkansas. His name was Bill Clinton. Happy birthday, Mr. President, the polite young Southerner said. His speech was a prelude to Clinton's first run for the presidency. It was a centrist self-criticism of his own Democratic Party. Perhaps, he said, 
we have lagged behind, but we are on the move now. Clinton added, we want the government off our backs too, but we need it by our sides. It was, as the political historian Timothy Noctelli said, a therapy session for the Democratic Party. But maybe they needed it. This was 1985. They had lost two elections badly. And though they didn't know it at the time, in three years, in an election in which the now 36-year-old Clinton would consider running but decide not to, the party was about to get spanked again. Reagan's State of the Union addresses were always good, and the party struggled in responding to them in the following years. Sometimes Speaker Jim Wright delivered the response, other times it was Robert Byrd, the leader of the Senate. Since 1966, the opposition party has responded to the President's State of the Union address off and on. How they have done it has varied over the years. Sometimes it's been boring, sometimes interesting. Sometimes the opposition has been loyal, as in the first response to the State of the Union in 1966, where Everett Dirksen, Republican minority leader, reminded voters that, just as the president had said, we had to remain in Vietnam and not to show evidence that we were a paper tiger in the world. Minority leader Gerald Ford meekly offered that we were outnumbered two to one as Republicans, but would not sacrifice the ideals that would make us Republicans. In 68, another response would feature both Gerald Ford and a congressman from Texas, George H.W. Bush. So it's not unusual to have a future president appear in the response to the State of the Union. Sometimes these responses have been highly critical, as in 1972, when Senator Frank Church blasted Nixon on continuing the war. Opposition parties have tried different dynamics to create news during these events. In 1970, Democrats did a 45-minute program featuring many different congressmen and senators from all over the country. 1982, they did the same thing. 1986, when Clinton spoke, it was part of that town hall meeting, showing off new Southern governors. They also uh, featured Bob Graham of Florida. And, of course, not to be outdone, the old politician, Tip O'Neill from Massachusetts. It's most commonly that, the congressional leader of the opposition who speaks at these events. But recent trends have been to use the speech as kind of a showcase of an up-and-comer. Clinton was a leading Democratic Leadership Council member, a centrist Democrat who wanted to move the party. He was a Southern governor. In 1995, when he became president, Governor Christine Todd Whitman, a Republican from New Jersey, a Republican woman politician, gave the response. In 1997, the Republican Party went with African-American congressman from Oklahoma, J.C. Watts. In 2003, the Democrats would show their diversity, featuring Asian-American Governor Gary Locke of Washington. When President Obama became president, Bobby Jindal, governor of uh, Louisiana, was featured. So these responses to the State of the Union can also be showcase events for new talent, rising stars of the Republican Party. In 2004, the Democratic Party started offering a Spanish response to the State of the Union. 
and the first one was delivered by Bill Richardson, governor of New Mexico. This is something that Republicans have also done since President Obama took office. The Constitution grants the president the ability to speak to Congress from time to time. These are the stylistic words that make our Constitution more than just a boring document, most likely written by Governor Morris. He was the head of the Committee of Style uh, in the Constitutional Convention. You know, the constitutional members would agree on what they wanted in the document, and Morris kind of fleshed it out. But it's more than just style. The intention there in the words from time to time is to somewhat limit that ability or perhaps soften it. If you say from time to time, you don't mean the president can show up on Capitol Hill every week. Washington would set the president of an annual address, though presidents also give addresses during special matters, particularly an economic crisis, a big piece of legislation and the like certainly during a war. Alexander Hamilton, in his Federalist 69, doesn't address the State of the Union speech directly. That term wasn't used. It started being used in the 1940s to describe the president's annual message. But in that document, he was trying to soften any opposition to the new Constitution, particularly opposition to this office of the president, and soften the perception of the powers of this new office, the presidency. He describes it as an ability to merely recommend matters and compares it to the governor of New York or certainly the monarch of Great Britain. This president, comparatively weak, he asserts, can only recommend matters. Yet, presidents have found that the modern television State of the Union to be more than just a weak speech. It can be useful to focus the country on their agenda. The president, in effect, looks over the heads of the members of Congress and talks right to the American people. The Constitution doesn't grant this ability to the opposition party. The members of the Constitutional Convention, nor the men at the ratification conventions, did not talk about parties at all. They certainly didn't consider any concept of equal time. But then again, this wasn't really intended by all measures to be a big event. He shall address the Congress to give information from time to time. This was really between the President and Congress. It is a statement that they wanted this executive office to be involved in the legislative body. It wasn't to be totally separate, but also to have some distance as well. He shall from time to time. Lyndon Johnson did think this would be a big public event. So it's 1965. He decided to move the speech from noon when presidents were traditionally giving it to 9 p.m. so there'd be a full nationwide audience in all time zones. At that point, the TV networks decided that the other side should get some equal time. And thus, in 1966, Ford and Dirksen appeared for the first of what has been historically a low-rating event. The speech has no constitutional foundation, as we said, and thus it takes a variety of forms. Sometimes the opposition party speaks in a group, a team, like the Democrats' town hall we mentioned. In the 1970s, sometimes they didn't deliver the speech at all. The only discernible pattern in recent years is that, since the late 70s, the opposition party always delivers the speech, and that one person now generally speaks for the party, starting with Tom Foley in 1990. At least that's the most common way to do it. Occasionally, there'll be 
the leaders of the two branches, if the party controls both branches, or two significant persons in the party. Nancy Pelosi, Tom Daschle appeared in 2004. This year is unusual that there were two responses. One from Representative Paul Ryan, who heads the House Budget Committee, and another from Minnesota Representative Michelle Bachman. Bachman delivered the response for the Tea Party Express, which her spokesman was careful to note is not the entire Tea Party. It is a Tea Party organization based out of California. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. That organization asked her to give a response, and so she did. The difference between the two speeches may be little more than a difference in tone. Both of them focused on the deficit. Ryan said, Our debt is the product of acts by many presidents and many congresses over many years. No one person or party is responsible for it. Bachman, by contrast, offered criticisms of Obama's economic measures though she did note unacceptably high deficits under President Bush. I would say generally that the response to the State of the Union has never really had that much impact. In 1996, when Majority Leader Bob Dole spoke right after President Clinton and gave the Republican response, it was well known that Dole was the leading contender for the nomination in 1996 and would be challenging the President. His speech was seen as a little weak, And it certainly didn't help the gap in the polls between he and Clinton. Most responses to the State of the Union are low-rating events quickly forgotten. I do think 2011 may be remembered a little because of these two competing speeches. And it may have some, albeit limited, impact in demonstrating that the Republican Party may be split. In fact, the Washington Post's has reported that uh, some Republican aides were criticizing CNN for trying to show a split between the party. Uh, According to two emails they received, CNN is basically inventing a conflict that doesn't exist by inviting uh, Bachman to speak and airing the speak. It's not responsible journalism. The other possibility is that given the two speeches, Bachman's speech will make Ryan's speech, the official Republican speech, seem moderate. The State of the Union is a heavily publicized and it's constitutional event. And although State of the Unions are sometimes forgotten, there have been many presidents who have had historic State of the Union addresses that we'll remember. The idea that the Constitution of the United States allows a president to speak to the Congress and that the Congress basically must listen. If only the founders in Philadelphia knew what an exciting TV event that would be. The response, by contrast, is entirely a TV event. And so, as we saw in 2011, it can be fluid. It's not normal, for instance, to invite the Libertarian Party in, to invite the Socialist Workers Party in to give their responses. It's normally just equal time for the key opposition party 
But, since there's no constitutional basis for the speech, I suppose, networks can do whatever they want. And this year we saw that. Whether this will be one freak event, or it will lead to more of these in the future, will remain to be seen. But you may have seen the most talked about response to the State of the Union in some time. Maybe ever. I want to thank you for listening. The website's myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. The archive's 1499. You can get uh, a lot of the episodes that we've recorded going all the way back to 2006. If you do like the program, tell somebody about it. Thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.